an improvised score for a film noir classic. A rock song that had its own life beyond the film. And a larger-than-life love theme from a French-Canadian songstress. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. All right, folks, another Themes and Variation coming at you. We got a fun episode for you today as we're talking songs that got me into scoring. And if you know me at all, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Carter, you're not a film scorer at all. So like what songs got you into scoring? And my response would be, well, that's a little bit rude, but more accurately, yes, you are you are correct. And that's why I have two incredible composers and producers as my guests for this episode in Sophia Holquist, a.k.a. Drum and Lace, and Ian Holquist. These two have scored some incredible projects, both as a duo and each on their own. Ian has worked on projects for Netflix, HBO, Amazon Prime, and Disney+, Plus, as well as a number of feature films such as Netflix's Rattlesnake. And Drum and Lace has a similar breadth of credits, composing for feature films like Netflix's Deadly Illusions and shows for networks like NBC, Amazon Prime, and others. And be sure to check out the original music Sophia releases as Drum and Lace. It is absolutely incredible. In fact, here's a little snippet of a recent release titled Armatura. I absolutely loved catching up with these two and they had such incredible insight into the world of composing for film and TV. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode, Songs That Got Me Into Scoring. All right, folks, another themes and variation coming at you. We've got a fun episode for you today. No Mahe on this episode, so I don't have uh, the pleasure of asking her how she's doing, but I do have the pleasure of being joined by two incredible composers and producers in Sophia and Ian Hulquist. How are you guys doing today? We are splendid. <laughs> Excellent. I just got the big news that you're moving uh, from Los Angeles to London. Um, I'm not trying to dive too deep into your personal lives. This isn't what the show is about, but like what maybe spurred the the move on for you guys? I'm so excited for you as we were just talking a little bit. Um, but yeah, what uh, what maybe did that uh, that move? Uh, I think it's just something we've been talking about for a long time. Sophie grew up in Europe and mm-hmm. she's been in the US for 18 years, so basically like half her life. And now that we have a, a little one, we just we decided we wanted to try something different, raise her somewhere that's not in America for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we also feel like we're at a point in our career where um, after two years of pandemic, where everyone worked remotely, that things haven't necessarily picked back up in person. And mm-hmm. we're at a point in our career where we can move without um, it jeopardizing work. So we can keep working on movies that are filmed in the U.S. and edited in Los Angeles or edited in New York and work from wherever and it won't uh, really matter. You know, it's going to be kind of up to us to keep up the time zone difference. But apart from that, um, you know, spotting sessions, everything is sort of in 
been remote this yeah, whole time I anyway. Mean, so I honestly feel like we're more efficient with our new working methods than we were before. Like we don't have to spend an hour and a half in traffic going back and forth to places. Yeah. yeah and in terms of like the time zone, it's probably going to end up being kind of nice because we will be going to sleep as emails start flooding in. <laughs> yeah. And we wake yeah. up and we can work all day without getting a bunch of emails right in the morning. So it, you know, it's going to be an adjustment, but I think, I think it'll be good. I, I love that. That's I'm so happy for you guys. It's, it's very exciting. Um, I do want to just turn our attention a little bit to part of the reason why we're, we're here and able to speak to you both today. And that is of course the new film Rosalind that you both scored together uh, now streaming on Hulu. Um, the, the synopsis I got, and I've checked out a little bit, of course, checked out the score, uh, pretty thoroughly, but a comedic retelling of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add about the show before we dig into the music a little bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's, um, really highlighting a character that is just kind of like a side character in Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. Um, this, uh, woman named Rosalind, who is, um, actually Juliet's cousin and was Romeo's first um, love, love. And first, well, first, uh, girlfriend. Sure. And, um, and so it's kind of like a, a joke on, it kind of flips Romeo and Juliet on its head with, um, them not really being the main characters of the story. Awesome. And, you know, you guys are a big part of our newest course, uh, intro to scoring for TV and film. Um, you talk a lot about musical lookbooks in your portion of the course. I'm wondering, is that a technique and approach that you used in creating the score for Rosalind. Yeah, um, we we did that. We wrote, well, actually, when we first got brought into the project, um, they were still filming and they actually needed us to come up with the arrangements for some of the cover songs because the last day of production was them filming a masquerade ball scene and they wanted the band performing those songs on stage. So we kind of had to figure out the ensemble lineup, the arrangement and produce those tracks fairly quickly. And then once we got past that, then we started working on our, our like initial theme ideas. Um, and I don't think we were like a full suite, but we did write like a handful of themes that kind of made up a musical lookbook of like, this is where we could go with things. Mm -hmm. We got like a, a Rosalind action theme, a Rosalind love theme. And um, those all kind of kept evolving evolving throughout the writing process. So how would you describe, I guess, then the, the overall lookbook for Rosalind? I mean, there's a distinct sound in the soundtrack. Uh, it's like almost like era, it's era appropriate, certainly, but maybe a little updated um, and in your style. Hopefully I didn't just step on your toes for your definition of, of what the lookbook would be like. But yeah, in your own thoughts, what, how would you describe the lookbook for Rosalind? Uh, I mean, I would describe the sound um, as kind of like Renaissance pop. It continues with our writing of, you know, score in a way that can also blend itself to kind of like a pop world and pop idiom. Um, but then we used Renaissance instruments and um, and yeah, just kind of did a blend. So it was a mix of like Renaissance instruments, strings and synths. And it's definitely more... Um, traditional in sound than a lot of other stuff that we've done, but definitely still employs uh, modern um, chordal changes and melody mm -hmm. and things that you wouldn't necessarily have heard at the time. Uh, but I think just like, you know, the reaction that somebody hears by hearing a harpsichord will immediately trigger something kind of, you know, of the time. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's also something that we were kind of banking on that that would help sort of set the tone as well. Were there any instruments or anything in sound design that maybe you hadn't explored before in your own composing that this project kind of brought out of your work? Yeah, I mean, we didn't, we've never really 
had to necessarily write for like Baroque flute or lute before. <laughs> Um, I feel like we've snuck in harpsichord in the past in productions, but it, we weren't always thinking about it as like something that could actually be played live. And that was mm -hmm. another thing is like everything that we wrote, we had to consider that like an orchestra will have to play this because we were going to record it. I mean, we, we've done live recordings before, but this was a bigger scale than we've done in the past. Yeah. And also just from the, the experimentation side um, for the first thing that we had to do, which was the masquerade ball, um, as Ian mentioned, there had to be players on stage. And so we had to find an ensemble that was actually um, realistic for the time period. And um, on top of that, we had to find instruments whose um, who exist as sound libraries. So, you know, like we found a bunch of uh, esoteric and old Renaissance instruments, but they either don't make them anymore, or if they do have some in existence, they're in museums, they definitely don't have like a sound, you know, a soft synth version of it. So, right. Um, I think that that was also like a really big telling factor on like, what could we, as Ian said, like find live players for eventually, but what could we mock up effectively for um, in the meantime yeah. as well? That really addresses, I think, one of my other questions just about the score and just the, were there any challenges? Because that does seem like obviously a challenge you guys had to find a workaround for, but any other challenges in, in your work on Rosalind that you had to kind of meet and, and address and get through? I, obviously, this was, when was the composing work done on this um, through the pandemic i'm certainly sure but last december through may was the bulk okay. of it yeah yeah, yeah. We, like we came on board like september october 2021 mm -hmm. and we're on and off working on it through early may of this year yeah i think a few months we're definitely figuring out the comedy um it, we always say that comedy is one of the hardest things to score uh because you can easily take the comedy away with your music uh you could you know, step on its toes. And we think comedy oftentimes can work best uh, just dry without music if it's strong enough. Uh, so I think always finding the right balance of that, finding the right approach to like add to the scene without adding too much, without taking mm -hmm. things away. Mm -hmm. uh, if one example is like there's a scene where Rosalind and Juliet are playing croquet and it's a very simple cue, but we tackled that like four or five times so we actually got it right. any other fun tracks or cues that that landed on the on the soundtrack that you just feel like that was a real joy to work on that particular piece of music well now that the film has been out for a second it seems like folks really enjoy um some of the more romantic moments um like mm. folks seem to enjoy a scene music that plays during a scene when romeo hands um rosalyn a note We also really enjoy like a kind it's kind of like a comedy like it's it's kind of like a a comedy moment that takes itself very seriously called mind the fish ian really took the reins for the um Roz and juliet montage which i think is like such a great um piece of music Thank you. 
Awesome. Uh, anything else on, on Roslyn that you guys would like to, to touch on before we listen to some tracks? Just hope people find it and enjoy it and it makes them laugh. Yeah. And I hope that they feel like the music helps support um, the great movie that Roslyn is. It absolutely does. In my humble opinion. Um, all right, folks. Yeah. Let's, let's dig into our first selection for the episode. Songs Agami into scoring. And here it is. Folks, we're listening to Générique from Miles Davis from the film Ascension pour l'Echafaut, or Elevator to the Gallows from director Louis Mal. came out in 1958. Uh, either of you familiar with the track, first and foremost? I do not think so. No, it's <laughs> yeah. it's pretty obscure uh, piece of music. Um, but we're all, I mean, yeah, we're all Berkeley people here, so I'm sure Miles is, is definitely very much a part of all of our lives. I'm not a film scorer, um, but I wanted to, like the, the process of how this film was scored is so exciting to me. So Miles is on tour uh, in Europe. He did, uh, I'm just sorry, just to give a quick synopsis of the film, uh, a self-assured businessman uh, murders his employer, uh, the husband of his mistress, uh, which unintentionally provokes an ill-fated chain of events. It's on HBO Max. I highly recommend anybody streaming it. Um, it's really good. Film noir, um, all subtitled out. I'm not a big... Do you guys like old old film? Do you get into like the classics? I'm, I personally don't. Um, but there are any from like the 50s or like the golden age that you guys just are like, I'm, I got to watch that film. Uh, I mean, I, I love them. I just, mm -hmm. I feel like we're, we just never really dive back into them that often. Right. We probably should more often than we do. Yeah. Um, just because there's so much coming out and being made now that we're trying to keep up with. But yeah. I mean, yeah, like 400 Blows, one of my favorite films um breathless is amazing i mean hit the hitchcock movies obviously yeah, yeah. Four and for just everything probably the birds being uh the one that struck me the most mm -hmm. um i mean there's so many like italian you know like la dolce mm. vita and yes you know Bellini films are incredible Bellini films but then there's a little bit later you know like even like amarcord Juliet of the Spirits. There's just so many. I feel like for me, I kind of stop more in that era, more in like 60s, 70s experimentation. Mm. Um, 40s, 50s, for some reason, are always a little bit harder for me. I don't know if it's just, um, honestly, even just like language wise, I get so stumped at the the delivery. It just always feels very, and I, it might be because I'm foreign and it's just, it's not something that's within um, historically within what I grew up with, you know, so who knows, who knows this, this piece and how this was scored. So fascinating to me. Uh, Marcel Romano, uh, was with Miles Davis in, in, during his European tour, he was documenting the tour for, for a documentary he wanted to put out. Um, and he has a detail on the process. So, um, Miles watched the film and took notes before scoring any of it, obviously. Uh, but soon thereafter, he heard Davis just playing little bits of themes in his hotel room on the piano that later turned up in the film. For the recording session, 
uh, two weeks after Davis first saw the screener of it, um, Davis brought a bunch of just random musicians uh, from France into a studio with no preparation. Uh, they played while watching the scenes. Um, and so Davis, just, Miles just gave them a couple of chords and they improvised to every scene that they were watching throughout the film. Really incredible. I'm going to add, like, has that process, have you, I'm sure maybe you've been coming up with themes and ideas for films and, and shows that you're working on. That probably plays into your process, but have you ever scored anything like that where it's just feels completely improvised or even just a little bit? Not no. since college. <laughs> I, I wish, <laughs> I wish I could score something like that. Honestly, I feel like yeah. it, there's, there's a lot that goes into that though. Like Miles had musicians that he was like comfortable and like played, literally was on tour with. Yeah. So like yeah. they already have their own language, so they can yeah. kind of just go and do that. With us, it's like we can improvise with ourselves, but yeah. it's not as exciting. But you know the 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 problem. It's not a problem. the 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 way that the business has evolved is to create um, films and products that have to be successful. Like let's yeah. just you know like not not to sugarcoat it, but you know mm -hmm. like so the idea of being able to do this is fantastic but if you're working at a certain level you know you are having the movie go to test screenings and then mm -hmm. there's 20,000 notes and then there's another test screening there's 20,000 notes and you know when you're working on movies nowadays they change you know they're not like spliced together with glue and tape so um things can change at any second so like the nature of improvisation just doesn't unfortunately I think work unless you come in with a finished product or you have them cutting picture to your music I yeah guess. You, need to, right. you need to have like a real understanding with your director and yeah. filmmakers and and studio if it's at that level to be yeah. like this is what we're doing we're not going to change it because <laughs> once and that's it it needs to be like a jonathan glazer mika yeah. or like you know but even, jeff barrow even and that, salisbury like, like months of work and reworking ideas and trying things yeah I, I that's that's why I think it's so appealing to us because it's like oh my god we can just go in like make <laughs> one time. Yeah. I mean I do think that the closest composer that's probably doing that right now or at least has a very good um show makes it seem like that it's the case is Cristobal Tapia de Vere. Sure. Mm. Because like the White Lotus feels improvised. It does. It really does. Wow. But who I, knows? I yeah. feel like they. I mean I honestly think that they might have just been like this is genius. We're gonna cut around it. Mm. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I, I just I can't get over thinking about like Miles getting twenty thousand notes on an improvisation and, and yeah, that, right? what that reaction would be like. Um, but I don't think it was the exact process. But Antonio Sanchez score, which is just drumming for Birdman, uh, I believe was was improvised to picture. Are there any? films that you guys maybe know that like had a, a white lotus fantastic uh call sophia but any other pieces and films or tv that you feel like maybe used a similar process i mean if it was diegetic you know i would say mm. like movies with drumming or movies kind of like that where it's like the the production audio stays in you know like a whiplash sort of situation Ex but exactly I'm not yeah sure. um brian reitzel i think his name is for the hannibal scores I remember reading an interview with him and he he had like an incredible studio where it was just like it was everything it was like every instrument all the synths drums percussion cymbals and he i think he was saying that he would literally just play scenes and go around and just like build like a sound collage and that score is incredible like it was, awesome. it was so effective yeah. and interesting just the last 
thing on the process for this, just the height of improvisation. I like we've all played improvised music in, in one way or another, and you're reacting to listening all the time. Like maybe somebody plays something, you're like, oh, I'm going to latch onto that. But reacting to what you see as well is just such another experience. And um, this, the tune, like the this appears, this is the first piece that appears in the film. Uh, Jean Moreau and, and Maurice Renee's characters are like, they're talking about their plan and, and how they're going to get away with it. And there's just these very long zoom out shots and um, very film noir quality with this piece as well. It's just very foreboding. Almost a little bit of, of um, foreshadowing in, in how I think some of the harmony gets laid out. Um, the there's just two chords again. Like this is Miles in this era. This is right after kind of blue, is modal explorations. Just a couple chords and a couple themes. Um, way different from his, you know, the hard bop and bebop era of like more chords and more harmony and more information. I love this score. I recommend anybody checking it out. The two chords in question on this piece are just D minor nine uh, to A7, flat nine, very straightforward. It eventually moves to relative major, um, which kind of gives it like this, like in the context of the film, this moment of everything might be okay and we might get away with this. And I won't spoil this film for anybody, but just watch it. There's a slight nod to, I got to mention, to my favorite um, standard of all time, Alone Together in the Melody at 51 seconds. So. last thoughts on this piece or anything before we dive into Ian's selection, which I'm very excited to chat about. I'm just curious now. I want to go listen to this. Yeah. Film. Nice. Uh, do we have the pleasure of listening to? This is Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls from the film City of Angels, starring Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan from the late 90s. Oh man, I I had no idea this song was written for a film. Like it, it totally, I had not seen City of Angels. Uh, I'm absolutely going to go see it now. Nicolas Cage as an angel and like that's incredible. But this is one of those songs that transcended the film that it was made for it's incredible like I, when i think of goo goo dolls this and slide I think slide yeah slide is the other tune that comes to mind Could you whisper in my ear, the 
Ian, yeah, tell us a little bit about uh, this film. I mean, the film or the piece, the track, of course, and why why you picked it for today. Yeah, I mean, I think I was just trying to think of a song that really become, in my mind, is like synonymous with another film. And we're like, they can't really live apart from each other. Mm. Uh, and also, it's, it's something that, for me, really introduced me to the concept of how music can become cinematic. And like, you can take like a, a rock song, but really kind of open up the scale of it and have it tell a story um, of like another piece of media at the same time. So like, I think it was just like, it was really one of like the doors opening to eventually lead to film scoring without me realizing it. The Again, like me not knowing that it came from the film, the lyrics have a totally different meaning to me now. Like the, the lyrics are really poignant and and absolutely perfect. I do, I watched the trailer. I've, I've got to watch this film, but there's a moment in the trailer where Meg Ryan's talking to Nicolas Cage and she's still not sure what he is exactly. And she's like, are you married? He's no. Are you homeless? No. Are you a drummer? <laughs> like, I don't, <laughs> like she's absolutely called out drummers there. Um, uh, yeah, on this it like blew my mind. Anything about the track itself that you find particularly intriguing um, from the production, lyrics, anything like that, the harmony? We were listening to it just now before we spoke, and like we were both remarking like how good it sounds. Like, oh yeah, the drums are sound incredible, and yeah. I think the way it's opened up, like they do like a full on like jam with the orchestra. I think it's it's been way more influential influential on me than I even realized. Now listening back, it's like, oh yeah, this just is like, like the golden age of when there was just so much money to go around yeah. for <laughs> making music and you know, like it was so undemocratized, which you know is now the good thing is that everyone can get their music out and everyone yeah. can make music and you know, but there is something to be said for like the sort of quality, like Ian was saying that like the drums just sound so good and yeah. like the orchestra sounds so good. And it's just, you know, mm -hmm. these, these songs were commissioned for these movies by these like humongous, you know, I acts. It's crazy. What, yeah. Something that stuck out to me too. And this goes for Sophie's choice as well. is like, this song is almost five minutes long. Mm -hmm. And like, you look at any song that's made for a film nowadays and it's like, three minutes tops like there would be no time for orchestral jam session in the middle of the song <laughs> yeah. well that's like, because spotify gotta keep those playlists yeah going, man. yeah it's like wow like, it was a moment where we could really just kind of indulge a little bit but it like without feeling overindulging because actually i don't know it feels good like you listen to it, it's like i wouldn't want to skip that no no it's a peak I, the song is so different without that I, it's yeah, it's, it's so theatrical in that moment. I There is the other thing that I had no idea happened in this tune, but it's like in six, right? I think kind of throughout, you can think of three, but I think six, eight. And then the way it switches to four uh, is so cool. Like it keeps the eighth note. You don't even notice that it's happened really until you you sink into the tune a little bit um wow so ian you mentioned you, you found maybe that this is this piece has been familiar or that influential rather 
to you without even realizing. Is there anything in particular that you find yourself that you might be able to trace a through line from Iris to now your work as a, as a composer? Yeah. I mean, I think even just like the way it's arranged, um, mm. I think this came out as I was really getting into learning guitar early on. So I think like this, like I listen to this now and like, it just, it feels like how I would approach playing guitar for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and I think this song too kind of then led me to being such a huge Wilco fan because it's a lot of like, it's a very similar arrangement for yep. some of the songs. Um, so I think just like production and scale wise, like it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. It, it is very curious now listening back. It's like, Oh wow, this, this really taught me a lot back then. And I still like, I, 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 without thinking that's what it is, like I can trace a lot of what I do now back to that. That's awesome. It's ingrained in you, you just without knowing. Did you see this in theaters as a kid? Uh, I don't know if I saw it in theaters, but I definitely had it on like DVD and awesome. watched it a lot. I awesome. definitely saw it in theaters. And also, let it be known, <laughs> the other really good song on the soundtrack is the Alanis Morissette song. Yes. Oh. I'm going to ask you guys both uh, this in relation to your pick. It might be just impossible to answer, but with your skills and, and acumen and history now as composers, Ian, is there anything that you would do differently on this track for this film? Oh, man. I really, <laughs> no, I, like just listening to it now, I was like, this still holds up. Like, I, think, yeah. I was actually, Absolutely. it holds up better than I thought it would. Awesome. Well, let's get on to our final pick of the episode. Oh, another classic. Sophia, what do we have the pleasure of listening to? My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion and with arrangements by James Horner, the composer of the blockbuster motion picture Titanic. Oh, man. This I did see in theaters. I'm going to guess you both saw it in theaters, maybe multiple times. Yes. Oh. I do not know how I sat through a, over two and a half. Over yeah, four, it was so long. Hours, yeah. As as like a 14-year-old, 12-year-old. Yeah. It was Leo. It might have been Leo. It might have been Leo. It, yeah, incre- incredible movie, of course. I, where do you want to start with this song? I mean, I was going to say, you know, because I, I think of this, this song as, um, as kind of Ian said, as kind of like my gateway into thinking about soundtrack, just because mm. it's the first time that I noticed that um, the theme, Rose's theme in the movie is this song. So you hear this theme throughout the movie and then at the very end, you know, like it comes in and it's like the titles wow. and you know, at, the, at the end scroll, it's like the song fully comes in and stuff. So it was the first time that I remember thinking, you know, that score could be song and the other way around. And, you know, it's, it's more like, it's really the first time too that, um, I don't know. I feel like, you know, both of us, I'm sure when watching movies, we're like aware of the music, but just the song being such a big thing for i think anyone that's Mm -hmm. you know our age that's a millennial or whatever 
uh, that ever saw Titanic, I think it was really just like an easy way to then be like, oh, this song directly fits with the palette of the score. And it's, you know, Celine Dion wrote it with James Horner, who's um, credited as having right. music, I believe. Yeah. And getting you into scoring in the, in the influence, the way you mentioned, like the influence of developing a narrative musically that can be strung throughout the film so that it helps tell that story. Is there anything else that you find in this piece particularly influential to you as a composer? Um, a thousand percent. The The use of vocals and the score um, mm -hmm. of Titanic is something that having just listened back to it now for, you know, for the purpose of chatting with you, I was like, I have never found a score that has influenced me, but that I haven't listened to in a while that has the breathy vocals that I myself do on all the scores yeah. that I work on. I don't know how subconscious or how, you know, it's definitely subconscious, but just how much maybe I heard myself in the score when mm -hmm. um, I originally watched it and how maybe that was just something that like I internalized. And that's why I've always like thought that this was such a good song or such a good movie and um, just like, or just, you know, such a good soundtrack. So I think just like hearing the way that vocals were used in this and in a way that wasn't like operatic or it wasn't in a way that was like, um, adventure, you know, just like in a very soft and layered way. And also just the instrumentation, how it kind of bridged the gap of folk instrument and folk um, music with orchestra. I mean, maybe this song introduced us to using piccolo flute and pop and then we use piccolo <laughs> flute and rosin. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. And I always, the, the, the biggest thing that just stood with me, which, you know, is like, a I, I assume it now it's been taken as a historical fact is like, you know, the band kept playing as the Titanic sank. Right. And I yeah. just like remember that being such a big thing that stuck with me when I first watched the movie of being like, these people had such a love for what they did, that they did it till the very end. Um, and, you know, I feel like the Titanic has then come back into my life in different ways. Like I performed with this orchestra in L.A. called the Sonic Open Orchestra. And we um, did a rendition of Gavin Bryars' The Sinking of the Titanic, which mm. is this piece that can, you know, is it's it's malleable. So it can range from two minutes to two hours. You know, it just depends on the interpretation that each ensemble does. So we um, released that two years ago yeah, um, and recorded at the village with strings. And I was on electronics. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. There just seems to be this through line for this specific storyline or and then, I mean, the song is just like such a, it's, it's just like, you know, I hear the chorus and like my hair stand up on my arms. Epic's the perfect way to describe it. I just didn't, Try and do a little research. Um, I, I guess the demo was recorded in one take and the demo, her version of the demo vocals got used in the film. Um, oh. Yeah. So like one take and that was, the soundtrack is different. That was a, a more polished, I think, version, but that's pretty in, impressive. Um, real diva you know. for you. I mean, that talk yeah. about prime, prime Celine. Prime Celine. The pride of Canada for sure. <laughs> I always have to mention that i it all like it won literally every award that it was up for between 98 and 99 unsurprisingly um 
There's so a moment, Peter like, and I chose the same yeah. year movie. Actually, yeah. you know, he chose he chose his selection after I chose mine. So I think we, we <laughs> just chose a little piggybacking. Well, this was ninety seven. Well, yeah. I think yeah. we just think chose things Steve that was ninety eight. It's things that hit us when we were like just teenagers. Yeah, yeah, primed for yeah cinema. Those were good years, the late nineties. Um, but the the one thing that hit me listening to the group when the groove kicks in, there's two different snares. There's like kind of a side stick, sticky snare, and then like a really booming, heavy one. Yeah. Um, the little diminished passing chords that you get in the first are always cool. Of course, the modulation. huge and you know part of any epic song like this i think it jumps a major third even yeah it goes from yeah yeah big big leap anytime i hear something like this it can be a whole step you know no big deal and then but you hear this it's like oh actually it's quite a bit um celine's humming at the end of the piece too is something i'd forgotten about and how this song actually ends um but just anything else that you want to touch on with uh, my heart will go on i mean um i'm gonna ask you i mean i'll ask you the big question right now is there anything that you would do differently with your skills as a composer <laughs> yeah again this is these are tough like the, these songs have stood the test of time so maybe not but uh i mean i would you know. say for some reason even though they're a year apart this song i think it might be those 90s keyboards like it really yeah. <laughs> sounds like it's back then whereas like yeah. iris sounded you know it's it's obviously from the late 90s but like it almost could come out today in a way yep. maybe I, I think it's because the goo goo dolls wrote their song themselves and this was done with the composer of the film and no yeah. offense to james forner but he was a big right. uh yeah he he was definitely a big like soft keys yes <laughs> he was a man uh, of the time of the 80s and 90s you know some of yeah. that dx7 situation going on oh yeah. So <laughs> yeah yeah so maybe the sound design maybe if we it was coming out tomorrow yeah you, you know it yeah. probably wouldn't be as as good though i feel like it would probably mm. sound like overblown and not mix as well. Yeah, I just I think that there would be too much complication. I think there's something so simple and so just kind of like um other timely about my heart will go on that that it kind of lives. I don't know. I, I think it I don't know if it would be possible now. I think it would get over chopped up and yeah. plus there's no there's no Celine right now. There's nobody at the top of their game like that that can sing. Gaga. Like that. No, yeah. Mm, I mean Gaga's great for the top gun song. Not for this. I like to yeah. hear like I do. My heart will go on. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, like, here. Actually, <laughs> you know, I would love to hear Sam Smith do my heart will go on. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Wow. Michael Great. Oh no, 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 no. I didn't even say it. I didn't even finish say. It. No, we're just gonna stick to Sam Smith. I heard it. Nice. Or I mean, I guess there's Adele. Yeah. Uh, that's the only name I, that comes close, I think, currently, certainly. Um, any any final thoughts on My Heart Will Go On? Banger. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> I need spend more time listening to it and just kind of... <laughs> Gotta go rewatch Titanic. Yeah, it also just, <laughs> it also just um, brought back <laughs> such a vivid memory that I think I'd suppressed. But I definitely sang it at a talent show night <laughs> on family vacation when <laughs> oh, I was sick. like 13 years old. 
I just remembered, and I remember my mother being so proud and everyone else looking so horrified <laughs> because that modulation. Oh, yeah, you could have karaoke. <laughs> Oh my god great karaoke like, pick extremely oh, no. ambitious that's incredible well if there's recordings of that somewhere please send them our way so we can put it in the episode no, um no. i want to hear them oh man well i this is uh where we turn our our attention to i think my favorite party episode just what's going on with our guests musically uh so ian sophia what's going on with you guys i mean you both make incredible music even outside of uh, composing so i'd love to know you know the drum and lace project sophia what you got going on there and ian anything else that you got going on you got a big move obviously coming up that we touched on but just the floor is yours uh for anything you want to share um well i had my first like my debut lp uh mm -hmm. called natura come out in april which yep. i'm very proud of and features uh some amazing players from the london contemporary orchestra and an incredible italian drummer called valentina magaletti that plays drums uh and percussion and is just this incredible performer and um i'm still you know like kind of not to say like pushing it but i just feel like with the pandemic and with kind of like things mm -hmm. opening back up i still haven't had a chance to fully like perform it or you know really sort of bring it out to people so that's on all streaming services and i have some you know small shows coming up in la um, one with this series called floating and that's going to be the first week of November. And, um, you know, as you said, we're moving. So there's not too much else that's solidified. Um, mm -hmm. And then on the film side, I had a bunch of films come out in August that I'd worked on. Um, we did one together called Look Both Ways for Netflix. Uh, Ian and I co-scored. And then I worked on a movie called Summering. And there's a score soundtrack out for that. And another slasher movie called They Slash Them that was on Peacock. And there's just one more movie called Cobweb that's coming out in the next year, I'm assuming. Uh, it's also a horror movie, which is great. Awesome. Um, yeah. And then uh, my, uh, I, I work on a show called One of Us is Lying, mm -hmm. uh, also on Peacock. And season two of that just dropped today, uh, nice. October 20th. And I am in the middle of working on Hannah Marks's new film, Turtles All the Way Down, based on the John Green novel. And then uh, I'm about to start a new TV show that, may involve zombies and that's going to do it for this episode of themes and variation thank you so much for listening if you'd like to listen to every song mentioned on this episode be sure to check out the spotify playlist in our show notes be sure to check out rosalyn available for streaming on hulu and scored by our incredible guests drum and lace and ian hultquist and if you'd like to learn even more about scoring and composition in media, be sure to check out the brand new course at soundfly.com. Intro to scoring for film and TV. And yes, it does feature the aforementioned Drum and Lace and Ian Hulquist. And we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.